2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: Who I thought I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and as a child, those are all different people, really. There's no way that you could say that the childhood version of you was the same person that you are today. Your molecules are different, your body's different, your brain is completely different, and yet we have this illusion, and almost to the extreme a delusion, that we have always been the same person.
2: That's neuroscientist Gregory Burns. He wants you to know he's not the man he was. And in his new book, The Self-Delusion, he argues that for all of us, who we think we are is a work in progress. Craig is also the neuroscientist who scanned the brains of dogs to find out if they loved their owners. So in this conversation, we talked about his insights into both who we humans think we are and what our best friends think of us. And it's with his work with dogs that we begin. I think this is going to be an important conversation for many, many people. There are millions of us out there who either have a dog or have had one. It's hard for me to believe that there's hardly a person among us who hasn't said at one time or another, what is he thinking? And you've spent a lot of time figuring out not only what they're thinking, but what they're feeling. How long have you spent on the
3: Dog Project? It's been going on 10 years now. Um, It's hard hard to believe because I feel like it uh, just started it. Uh, But uh, it started in uh, 2011, actually.
2: And the most interesting thing about this is the way you determine what they're thinking or feeling is by actually looking into their brains, the way you would look into my brain in an MRI machine. But when I go into an MRI machine, which I've done many times for science, when I go in, they say, now make sure you don't move. How do you tell a dog not to move?
3: Well, it takes a little bit more effort than with most humans, although, you know, to be honest, a lot of humans require some um, <laughs> chemical aid, shall we say. Okay, oh, really? You know, honestly, when I started the project, I didn't know if it could be done because it, no one had, had tried it. Uh, but, you know, I had this this new dog that we had rescued from, from the shelter here in Atlanta, and um, I had spent... Oh gosh, probably 10, 20 years before that, studying how the human brain works, uh, putting people in as you know, as you know, using functional MRI to try to decipher how how people make decisions. And I thought, well, why not try a dog? Because after all, I mean, they're pretty much the only animal that will do this voluntarily or might do it voluntarily because they just love to be with us. And so, you know, it was really just a matter of trial and error and making, uh, a simulator in my basement of an MRI, so we could practice together. So you have
2: together. a mock MRI in the basement. I do, I do. <laughs> and and what? How do you introduce the dog to the uh, to the model of the MRI?
3: Well, they don't know it's an MRI. They, they all they see is that it's, <laughs> it's a strange it, thing. It, it is a strange thing, but you know, it, all it is is really it's a tube initially. So. You know, my dog is a terrier, and you know she she likes to go hunting small animals, so she has no problem going in tubes and things. Uh. And and then it was a matter of of trying to figure out how to positively reinforce her uh, for doing the things that I wanted her to do, which actually was quite simple. All she had to do was just lie down, put her head in a little uh, chin rest or cradle that I made, and and just hold that. Um, and so I just, I just used treats and positive reinforcement and, you know, just kept lengthening it until she could just essentially just stay there. Um, and mm. that part's just basic obedience. In fact, you know, any dog who can do a good downstay could probably do this. The hard part, as you know, is that the real scanner is really loud. Mm. And, and that's it's scary to me for most people, um, you know, the dogs don't seem to be bothered by the fact that it's, it's an enclosed space. So some people get claustrophobic about it, but dogs don't seem to care about that. But the noise is something different. And that took a lot of work. And, and again, I just approached it very gradually. So I had audio recordings of the scanner sounds that we would use. And I would play them in the background at our house while I played with the dog, and over time, just gradually increased the volume until it matched. Until you went nuts. <laughs> or deaf, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> so, when, did you
2: also put earplugs in the dog's ears?
3: We did we did so you know as a matter of of just kind of caring about the animals and and taking care of their welfare you know we require people to put in earplugs for their comfort but also to protect Mm -hmm. their hearing and so we assume that dogs you know their hearing is goes higher frequencies than than ours and so we took pains to protect their hearing as well so initially we used Ear muffs, um, and then we switched to earplugs, um, and then just put some some wrap around their head to keep keep them from falling out.
2: So, what were you looking for in the MRI? How could you tell whether the dogs were actually feeling emotions?
3: Yeah, you know the the emotion question is tricky because you know scientists get kind of curmudgeonly about this. Um, so. To kind of kind of boil it down a little bit, to me, what I am looking at and was looking for with the dogs is: is it a positive emotion? Do they have positive emotions that aren't just contingent on me feeding them? You know, so they have some kind of positive response, maybe just to being praised or being pet or something that just you know we would more kind of humanly call a, a loving feeling that doesn't require food. And so we set out on a a set of experiments to to probe this. Now, we know a lot about the reward system, both in human brains and really all mammalian brains look the same in in this regard. It has a lot to do with the dopamine system. Um, It's centered on on structures we call the striatum um, or the caudate nucleus. And we know from decades of experiments that when, when animals anticipate something particularly when it's positive that we see these this dopamine release.
2: the impression I get is that the view of the role of dopamine has changed over the years For a long time I believe it was thought and I think many of us civilians still believe that the dopamine is a reward hormone that you feel good you feel good when you get a good experience but it's, isn't it isn't it's you're saying it's more the anticipation of a good experience
3: you're absolutely right so when when dopamine was discovered in the 50s it was uh, originally assumed that 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 was the neurotransmitter that was associated with pleasure itself uh. but as time went on and and more experiments were done uh it was found that it, it, the release of dopamine isn't necessarily to a pleasurable event. It actually happens in advance. It happens in response to something that predicts or anticipates something that's going to be pleasurable or particularly interesting.
2: That's so interesting. You can look into the brain of a human or, or, or a dog and see a prediction taking place.
3: Yeah, we call it the reward prediction error signal. Mm. And what we mean by a prediction error is, is that the brain is constantly trying to predict what's going to happen. And when something unexpected happens, that's a prediction error. And when it's in, in a positive direction, so something unexpected happens that signals something good, that is something that, that is closely associated with dopamine release. And so it is, in essence, it sets up a state of anticipation for that thing. So once we had the dog trained, my dog and one other dog, to to lie still in the scanner, we introduced hand signals. And so uh, initially it was just one hand hand up, kind of like, stop, that means you're going to get a a treat, but you have have to wait for it. And then the other signal was two hands up, kind of pointing towards each other, which uh, means nothing. That's associated
2: with not receiving a treat.
3: Right. And, and the reason we have to, well, part of the reason we have to do it this way is when we give the dog a treat in the scanner, then they move because they're going to eat the treat, and so we we don't get any data while they're consuming a treat. So we have to design all our experiments around that constraint. So the hand signals solve that problem, where it creates a, a, a state of anticipation, like oh, I'm going to get something good. And lo and behold, when we did that and we compared the two hand signals, we saw activity in in the reward system in the caudate nucleus of the dog's brain. Now that's not that's not anything surprising or particularly uh, earth-shattering you know as my colleagues said all I proved was that dogs like hot dogs um, <laughs> you, uh, you could get the Nobel Prize for that <laughs> maybe the ignoble, but um, the
2: Oscar Meyer prize anyway
3: but that was just the the foundation and then we could go on and do kind of more interesting complicated things so after that we looked at things like how does a dog respond to the smell? of their owner compared to the smell of of other people they didn't know or other dogs. And also we did, we did an experiment where we then compared the anticipation of food versus the anticipation of just social praise. just like saying, good girl. And and
2: Hmm. Now that's really interesting. What did you find when you did that?
3: I think we, we studied about 15 dogs in that experiment that, the vast majority of the dogs, about three quarters of them responded, their caudates responded equally to the prospect of food as well as praise. So it was kind of equal. And then uh, probably about a quarter of them responded more to the anticipation of the praise. And then there were a few who were, went the other way who responded more to the anticipation of food. and. There are there, those the owners of those dogs kind of knew that their dogs were really food mm. food motivated, um, versus the others uh who were really kind of uh socially glued to them. One one dog's name was Velcro because he was <laughs> glued to the owner.
2: Does it does it depend at all on the breed of the dog? Whether they're motivated by food or praise?
3: You know, so I think now I've scanned well over a hundred dogs, all different breeds. And the one thing I can say is that there's, there's as much variability in the dog's brain responses as we see in people's, which is to say that the dogs are all individuals. They are as different from each other as we are.
2: So what about emotions? How are you able to ferret out emotion?
3: So it's, I mean, it's a bit of uh, deduction um, and trying to put the, the pieces together. The pattern in the brain seems very similar to what people show when they, for example, see pictures of loved ones, um, and so we have to we have to make a, a leap at a certain point and and intuit that you know maybe the dog is experiencing something similar um, to what we experience, and, and I know a lot of scientists won't accept that, but then again, my interest is is understanding you know how other animals see and see the world and, and the types of experiences they have. I mean, it's, you know, Darwin, you know, thought that uh, that animals had emotions because, you know, in his theory, human emotions didn't just arrive out of thin air. They they evolved from, from similar processes in other animals. Um, and so there's good reason to believe if you believe in the theory of evolution that other mammals and, and probably all animals have some commonality and these these basic emotions especially related to social bonds if they're social animals
2: it must be a, a, one of the problems with your work is that we want so much for the dogs to understand us that you, you have to be careful not to ascribe too much to their actual understanding is that is that a thing you have to work on
3: it is it bedevils you a bit um, um
2: who is that who just spoke up
3: That sounds like Cato. We have four dogs at the moment and he barks a lot. He's also called Sir Bark a lot. And oftentimes he'll bark um, to go out and that gets the other dog's attention and they all go running out and then he either changes his mind or just stays inside. And my wife thinks that that's purposeful because he's trying to get the other dogs to leave so he can get something. I don't know if that's true, um, uh, but but the anthrop- anthropomorphizing, you know, is an issue. But um, I think a lot of it is it comes down to language. So you know, no other animal has language, and that makes it particularly difficult to understand their their view of the world since they don't have words. They don't have an, an internal monologue going on. Um, so it's hard to understand, you know, if they experience an emotion, you know, they're not saying to themselves, oh, I'm sad or, you know, I'm happy. They just they just have the feeling. Um, and I think that's hard for us to understand because it's so different than our experience. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the challenge then is to demonstrate that it does. And that's kind of why I've chosen to go the imaging route and try to, to look at the, the neural patterns that might indicate similarities uh, to, to humans experienced in those motions. It's tricky though, for sure. How would you like to see
2: laws change that affect dogs and perhaps even other animals?
3: Well, 10 years ago, so when, when my book, How Dogs Love Us came out, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times titled dogs are people too right it was a bit tongue-in-cheek to you know drum up some interest in the topic um i didn't realize kind of how polarizing that <laughs> that one <little laughs> essay how, was well, going when, to when, be way
2: was it polarizing
3: i got more email about that than anything else I've, I've written um a lot of it was not nice a lot of it was from other scientists uh, a lot of it was you know positive like Yes, my dog, my dog is my child, and you know a lot of people think that way. One of the interesting kind of side effects of that was that there was actually a judge in New York who cited that in a divorce proceedings uh, where the couple was arguing over the custody of their dog, which up until that point, dogs, like all other animals in the, in the eyes of the law, had been considered chattel which is in kind of no form would a dog's um, interest be considered. Uh, You know, what would the dog want? Who would the dog want to be with? But
2: This is interesting. So the judge had the way he would a child try to find out what the dog might prefer?
3: That's exactly what happened. Well, how did they determine that? Well, the judge set aside one day where the two parties would come in and make their case why the dog Uh, I believe the dog's name was Joey, it was a dachshund, why they should get custody of Joey. Now, it didn't come to that because I think they settled out of court and decided, I guess, a custody arrangement for Joey. But since then, there are a few states that actually have changed their animal laws to reflect that. And I know, oddly, Alaska was the first state to change their animal welfare laws. Um, So in the case of divorce, that... They need to consider the welfare of of the animal. That's the kind of incremental change that you know I, I'm very happy for. Obviously, I don't mean that dogs are literally people, but I think it's it's to jog the conversation that they're not property either. They're not just things, and so there's this kind of space in between where they're they're somewhat less than a, than a, a, a human, but more than a chair. Hmm. When we come back from
2: our break, Gregory Burns and I switch from what our dogs think of us to how we think of ourselves. The theme of his new book, The Self-Delusion. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One The proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message, either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Greg Burns. I think your new book takes us to a new place. Not so much the hard things to understand about dogs, which is what they're feeling, but the hard thing to understand about humans, which is who they really are, who they think they are. It's all laid out in the the title, The Self-Delusion, The New Neuroscience of How We Invent and Reinvent, our identities so the self is a delusion in a way
3: in a way yeah I, you know i think that's a, an extreme characterization of it <laughs> right but uh, you know but but it gets the point across that who we think we are is exactly that you know it's it's a thought process it's something that we have to construct in our minds you know this idea of self identity and Not only that, it's, you know, the version that we have in our head, it changes. So the version that I thought, who I thought I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and as a child, those are all different people, really. Um, Mm. You know, even at the most basic level, if you think about it, physically, those are different people. There's no way that you could say that the childhood version of you was the same person that you are today? Your molecules are different, your body's different, your brain is completely different, and you know. And you look at pictures of yourself, right? And they they look very different, um, and yet we have this illusion, and almost to the extreme, a delusion, that we have always been the same person, um, and the physical evidence would contradict that. And yet,
2: there's this very strong feeling we have that we carry with us artifacts from the past. And in fact, there's a lot of psychological theory based on the idea that we're still hounded by those former selves, what you would call former selves, and I guess they would call it a deeper, unrecognized self.
3: Well, that's right. So, we do. We carry around memories, and yet— our memories are quite poor, uh, they're inaccurate. The brain is not a video recorder. We do, not, we do not have recordings of events in high fidelity. What actually happens is that the brain creates snapshots of events, um, particularly under uh, situations of high arousal and fills in the gaps between those snapshots now, when things are happening in, in high arousal states, the brain is you know, firing very rapidly and kind of taking more pictures, if you will. Um, but in day-to-day life, you know, we tend not to remember the details of the day. You know, I could hardly remember what happened yesterday, as I'm sure most people will mm. have difficulty with that. So we have kind of these, these spots, just kind of these snapshots, and then we fill in the gaps. Neurologists call them lacunae, or holes.
2: How do we develop this sense of ourselves to start with? You mentioned the importance of stories. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, so uh, what I think happens is, you know, childhood... Is particularly important because, you know, if you think of a child, how are they to interpret what happens to them in the world? So they come into this world and, you know, by about age four, you know, they're able to talk and converse with adults quite well and things are happening around them. And so how are they to make sense of that? You can imagine it would be quite difficult if you didn't have some kind of guidance and culture, which is what we humans have. And one of the ways that, that we're particularly good at transmitting culture, which is one way of, of interpreting the world, is through stories. And and I, I think there's a, a lot of importance to the stories that children hear, uh, particularly early on fairy tales um, and just kind of all the childhood stories that we grew up with. And it's not... Not because necessarily that they might have some kind of moral lesson associated with them, although some do. Um, They actually provide templates uh, for the child to interpret what's happening around them. So things like kisses. You know, kisses in fairy tales are very important. You know, they have power. They can turn frogs into princes. They can wake... uh, princesses from deep sleep. And so you take something as simple as that, like a kiss. Now, what does that mean to a child? Well, you know, certainly their parents, you know, probably kiss them. Um, But then they start creating these templates for what a kiss kind of outside of that context is and what it means. And so by the time uh, they get to an age where they actually kiss someone out besides their parents, they've now got this kind of elaborate template built into their head from stories that they've heard and then, then movies that they've seen. And and that kind of provides a scaffold for their own experience. And whether it meets that kind of expectation or not, I mean, of course, it can't meet that expectation because those are fairy tales. But they're there. And they're there kind of in all sorts of things in our lives. And they they these templates, I think, stay with us through our whole lives, to be honest. So
2: perhaps. how does that storytelling contributes to a sense of self how do we know who we are because of a story we recall or is it, is that the way it works
3: that's why i think it works because i think who we think we are is the story that we tell ourselves and tell other people about who we who we are i mean when you say who are you uh, you might answer with your profession or um, you know some role that you have, but that's just a shorthand. Um, if you think about it, who you are is all the things that have happened to you in your life. But that alone doesn't really help. It's how you extract meaning from those things, and the meaning only comes from the story that we tell about them. You know, you you could take two people who had the same experience on a particular day, but they would have completely different stories about it because it would mean different things to them. You know, 9-11 is, is kind of a, a classic case in that. People's memories of 9-11, they think that it's very accurate, but it has been studied that that people's memories for even highly traumatic events like that degrade within one year. Mm. And the thing that and the thing that we remember about it is not that accurate, and it's been influenced by the retelling of it, um, both to ourselves and amongst each other. And so it's in that retelling that we construct a sense of self and, and who we are in the world.
2: I wonder if my experience as an actor uh, is an example of a change in sense of self.
3: Well, I was wondering about that. My,
2: well, here's, here's what my version of it is. I'm curious to know what you think. When I was a young actor... My father was a famous actor and a famous leading man. And I thought my stage identity was as an eccentric comedian. I had memories of funny ways I could move my body, a sense of humor I could use in playing a character. I didn't think I was a leading man. And as I got older, I realized I had to be able to play a leading man because I wasn't funny enough looking to just be a comic. (laughs) And I started to take on the persona of a leading man through the parts that I was playing. These leading man qualities sort of stuck with me after a a run in a play where where I had to act them out. Does that come close to what you're talking about?
3: Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that anyway because you are a professional in assuming other roles. As someone looking kind of at an actor, I would say, well, that's not the, not the person, right? That's the role. Um, but what you just said kind of made me think that that may not be the case if the roles are all in there in you. Well, that's what I think, especially
2: having read your book, My impression is, well, first of all, I've always had the impression that most of us, if we're pretty good, can play almost any character because we have so many characters in us. Or as you might say, having read your book, we have so many selves. And even for maybe a short period of time in my life, I've probably had murderous feelings. And if I can get back to that and let that luxuriate in me, as I play a villain, I don't have to be somebody else. I can be that part of me that's already in there, but usually kept under
3: wraps. Don't people want to know that, are you Alan Alda? Um, I mean, you probably, people come up to you and they say, you're Hawkeye, right? You must get that a million times.
2: Right. The Hawkeye they saw was me trying to fit the character as I understood it from the page, trying to fit it to those parts of me that were available to it. And so it was a meeting of me and the and the character. When in fact, in the beginning, right before the first shot of the whole series, I thought, how am I going to be this guy? He's nothing like me. But I moment by moment found how there were connections I could make. It would be my version of him. So in a way, I was who they thought I was, but it was a st- construction of many different
3: parts. And does he still live in there? I guess.
2: I don't think about him. I only If I had to play him, I'd bring him up. What do you suppose we can gain from the insights that you've uncovered in your book?
3: The one that I think is probably the most important is that if you believe my argument that our sense of self, who we think we are, is a story that we tell ourselves and other people. You can change the story. So the events in the past are the past. How you interpret them can change. Um, so I do not believe that that a person has to be beholden to a past self. I don't believe that, that I necessarily owe my past self anything, because those are those versions are water under the bridge, if you will. Mm. It can be very freeing in a way. You know, it opens up a trajectory into the future. So the, the future is unwritten. You know, we're kind of on these, these trajectories, our life arcs, if you will. So it's not, they don't have complete freedom. Um, we have our circumstances that, that we're currently in, whatever they are. But it's not like a projectile shot from a cannon. It's not like the trajectory is determined as soon as it leaves the barrel. We have the ability to change our interpretation of both the past, and then that affects the future of who we want to be.
2: So that's why you start the book with that challenging and provocative note to the reader. The work you are about to consume is an artifact. The author, as such, no longer exists.
3: Yeah, (laughs) that's right.
2: So, who were you when you wrote the book?
3: I was a person pre-COVID and and during COVID. Uh, now, two years later, going on, I'm a different person. Uh, up until now, I've been a neuroscientist and 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 someone who studies dog cognition. And kind of like many people, I think in in the middle of the pandemic, I. Was spending way too much time on Zoom calls and decided I would probably be happier living in the country instead of in front of my computer. And so Mm. I moved to a farm and now I'm becoming a farmer. Mm.
2: That's a pretty big change. Yep. In fact, I saw a video of you sitting on the ground with a bull's head in your lap while you're stroking his neck. (laughs) Yes. And you seem to have got Closer to that bull than than most of us get to dogs. Uh, Surprising image.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Again, I am a different person than I was two years ago, as as I'm sure you are.
2: Our time is running out, but this has been a fascinating conversation. We always end our show with seven quick questions that are roughly to do with communication are you you game i am what do you wish you really understood
3: (sighs) i you know looking back and this is reminiscing i think everything that i've done and continue to do is i would like to understand what it's like to be another person or another animal just in another body
2: the second question how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong
3: Yeah, well, um, if you read literally what I wrote in this book, you might say, well, the facts are open to interpretation, um, or consolidation in one's memory. Um, I, I think probably the most, um, less likely to make enemies, uh, would be simply to state that, you know, I see things differently, um you know, I interpret this evidence in such and such a way without saying you're wrong. You just say how you see it. Mm.
2: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: I was asked on national TV, does my dog love me? Not, not my dog, but the person asking the question.
2: <laughs> oh, they asked you if their dog loved them.
3: <laughs> yeah. Did uh, you say, let me
2: see the bite marks? How could you possibly tell?
3: Well, that that was my flippant response. I said, well, I don't know, because I don't know you or your dog. <laughs> I guess he meant what, or she meant,
2: can my dog love me?
3: Yeah, probably, but I took it quite literally. That's like asking if your spouse loves you. <laughs> yeah, right,
2: exactly. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: <laughs> uh... Uh, that's a good question. I guess uh, it's like point over in the in the in the in the, in the, the sky and say, "Hey, look at that." <laughs> <laughs> that's one I haven't heard before. <laughs> Is that a UFO
2: I just saw? <laughs> <laughs> that, that ought to change the conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you begin a genuine conversation?
3: Yeah. I, I'm terrible at this, really. Um, uh, and what I usually end up falling back on is talking about dogs. Um, oh well,
2: that, that's probably but, a very popular topic.
3: Yeah, f- you know, odds are better than fifty-fifty that the person probably has a dog and uh, mm. probably has a picture on their phone. So that's always a good way to talk about something with someone you don't know.
2: Next to last question: What gives you confidence?
3: I think. What gives me confidence now, in, at this point in my life, is is doing something, now that I live on a farm, is doing something outside, whether it's doing something in the garden and planting something and seeing it grow, uh, or doing something with the animals and I can see tangible uh, benefits or results of my actions. That's, that's what gives me confidence. Um, you know, I lived a, a lot of my life in academia, and a lot of that is, is dependent on things like publishing papers, which then requires uh, people to judge them. And that's very damaging, I think, to self-confidence. It was for me. Um, and the, the further I've gotten away from that, it, certainly the happier I've become.
2: Last question. What book changed your life?
3: the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov. Um, And so so for folks not familiar with that, the central character in that, so that book was written in the 50s, uh, was a character named Harry Seldon whose uh, job title was Psychohistorian. And he was a mathematician who came up with some mathematical thingamajig that could project the future of the universe and how it was going to evolve, including all the people in it. So I guess that's who I've tried to become in some way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was certainly a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your thoughts with us. I really appreciate it. This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Gregory Burns is the Distinguished Professor of Neuroeconomics at Emory University where he directs the Facility for Education and Research in Neuroscience, as well as the Center for Neuropolicy. On the other hand, he's also now a farmer with a growing herd of livestock. Explaining how these selves coexist is the topic of his new book, The Self-Delusion, The New Neuroscience of How We Invent and Reinvent Our Identities. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Scott Hershewitz. He's a philosopher who thinks about the big questions posed by his two young sons, Hank and Rex. When Rex was four years old, I was cooking dinner one night, and he asked me if God was real. And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend, and for pretend, God is real. And I was just kind of stunned. It came out from him like, that crisp. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. I thought about that for weeks after he said it. The weeks turned into months and then years as Rex and Hank's endless curiosity inspired Hershewitz's new book. It's engagingly titled Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids